clause. The Supreme Court justices struggled with a case about a high school cheerleader who claims her First Amendment rights were violated when she was suspended from the team because of a profane Snapchat post. Some of the justices, like Sonia Sotomayor and Brett Kavanaugh, seemed to think the punishment of a year-long suspension from the team was excessive. You're punishing her here because she went on the Internet and cursed and used a curse word related to what? To her unhappiness with the school and cheering, right? She's competitive. She cares. Uh, She blew off steam like millions of other kids have when they're disappointed about being cut from the high school team or not being in the starting lineup. While others were concerned that any sort of broad ruling would have unforeseen consequences. Here's Justice Stephen Breyer. I'm frightened to death of writing a standard. Joining me is First Amendment expert Eugene Volokh, a professor at UCLA Law School. So 50 million public school students in the country, they're all on social media. How significant is this case? Well, it could be huge or it could be narrow. It all depends on how the justices decide that. Indeed, it could be huger even than social media. So the funny thing about the way the argument went is the lawyer for the school, the local government entity, Lisa Black, a leading, leading Supreme Court uh, advocate, starts out with this very speech-protective argument. She says, look, Tinker, the official path war First Amendment protection for K-12 students, is actually very speech-protective. It's so speech-protective that it's not a problem to apply it to social media and apply it to other off-campus speech. To be sure, in certain situations, such as when somebody is saying something that might interfere with the way that their athletic program is operating or something like that, then the speech can be punished. But generally speaking, most political, religious, and other such speech is really strongly protected on campus and off campus. And the lawyer for the federal government, who was mostly supporting the school district's position on this, said the same thing. On the other hand, up comes David Cole, the director of the ACLU, who is the lawyer for the student, and he says, oh, this Tinker test, which is actually very unprotected, it allows all sorts of restrictions at school. And that's why it can't be extended off campus, because it provides so little protection that it has to be cabined to school speech. So because of the imperatives of litigation, they were just trying to win the case for their clients, they, in a sense, almost flipped sides on the bigger picture question of the scope of Tinker. So that question is going to be very much in play, potentially. The court could hand down a decision, for example, that says, yes, Tinker applies on campus as well as off campus because Tinker is such a speech-protective standard, and that could affect speech rights for K-12 students everywhere. Tinker is the landmark case from 1969 where the court said that students don't shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech at the schoolhouse gate. Can you explain the standard established in Tinker? Sure. The Tinker standard says, generally speaking, K-12 student speech can be restricted if it is reasonably likely to create material and substantial disruption. So think about it as a disruptive speech standard. Generally speaking, you can't punish ordinary citizen speech because it's disruptive. For example, if you're picketing some government building, that could be quite disruptive of uh, the activity in the building. But unless you're actually blocking entrances or threatening people or whatever else, you have the right to do that. But at least at school, Tinker says if the speech is substantially and materially disruptive, then in that case, it can indeed be restricted. 
So the question presented to the court here is what if this is speech off campus, but it risks creating disruption on campus? Does the school have the power to restrict that speech too? Or would that unconstitutionally give the school sort of 24-7 power over student speech in a way that the First Amendment cannot tolerate? Uh, one particular thing that's really important that played a big role with the argument is this question of the heckler's veto. Say somebody's standing on the street corner and is saying things that offend the crowd. It could be political, religious, it could be about race, about sexual orientation, about religion, about whatever else. And somebody in the crowd threatens to attack him. And the police officer then says, okay, I'm going to break all this up by removing the speaker, by telling the speaker to stop because the hecklers are endangering the speaker and potentially uh, causing a fight and others a breach of the peace. That's not allowed. That would be a so-called heckler's veto. Um, it would be the government essentially stepping in on the side of the hecklers to suppress the speaker. And the court has said that is not permissible because otherwise that would give hecklers too much power. But lower courts applying Tinker have said, well, Tinker says that speech can be restricted on campus if it's disruptive enough. And that disruption could very well come from people heckling, which is to say in this kind of context, either interrupting class or possibly fighting with a student or something along those lines. So the lower courts, at least some of them, have said the heckler's veto is a good basis for restricting speech on campus. One particularly notorious case involves some students at a California school wearing T-shirts with the American flag on the American flag. And this was because it was Cinco de Mayo, and apparently some students were upset at these American flag wearers because they thought that that was disrespectful and kind of anti-Hispanic or anti-Mexican when that's done on Cinco de Mayo. And the school said, well, yeah, you have to take off your American flag T-shirts. And the Ninth Circuit said, uh, yeah, the school was allowed to do that because there was a threat of disruption. And yeah, the heckler's veto is a good basis for restricting speech on campus. Now, Lisa Bland, the lawyer for the school district in the BM case, said, no, 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 heckler's veto can't be used as a basis for restricting speech on campus. And that's why the Tinker Standard, because it rejects the heckler's veto, the Tinker Standard is actually quite speech protective and thus can be applied off campus. This speech didn't cause any disruption to school functions. How does that fit in here? Well, uh, so the lower court says that the disruption test doesn't even apply to uh, off-campus speech. Off-campus speech, if it's protected against criminal punishment or against civil liability, it's protected against school discipline, at least generally speaking. So as a result, it doesn't matter if it's disruptive or not. The school wants to be able to show that it was disruptive, not to all of the schools, but to the um, uh, operation of the cheerleading squad. And they say, look, uh, she wasn't expelled from school. She wasn't suspended from school. She was only suspended from cheerleading because her speech being disrespectful to the whole enterprise of cheerleading and being disrespectful, therefore, to the coach and her teammates is disrupting the effectiveness of this particular cheerleading program. So that would be the school's argument. Some of the justices seem to pick up on the point that this was an extracurricular activity. Does that give the school more leeway to limit outside speech? So that's a good question, and we don't know what the court will say about that. The question presented to the court in the petition, the question that the court agreed to hear, doesn't focus on that. It just asks whether the Tinker Standard applies to off-campus speech. And usually the court tries to stick with the question presented. So some justices might say, look, we're going to 
leave this question of whether there are any special rules for extracurricular activities, we're going to leave them to a different case where that is the issue that we agreed to hear. In this case, we are deciding the question presented, which is all about off-campus speech, regardless of whether it relates to an extracurricular activity. At the same time, you could imagine uh, some of the justices, or maybe even the majority of the justices, saying, look, uh, we ought to decide the case narrowly with an eye towards the particular facts of this particular situation. And in this situation, the punishment for the student was simply suspension from an extracurricular activity. That kind of the threat of that kind of punishment isn't as chilling as speech. It doesn't deprive somebody of their right to an education. It only deprives them of the ability to be on the cheerleading squad, and that's not a big deal. So you could imagine the court coming up with this rule, although you could also imagine some justices saying that for many students, participation in an extracurricular activity is very important for them, both kind of personally and in some respects educationally. Um, and uh, uh, threatening removal from that kind of activity for your speech is indeed going to be chilling the speech. Because recall, in this case, you know, the speech was just kind of this girl complaining about uh, about not making a varsity. But in principle, you could imagine somebody saying something political or saying something about a religious topic or some other topic that might cause tension within the team. And then you could imagine the coach saying, okay, fine, you're off the team because you're saying things about immigration or about race or about religion that people don't like. That, again, could be quite chilling, a really quite valuable. So those are the kinds of questions that the court might have to consider. So you had Justice Alito saying they needed a clear rule, and Justice Breyer saying, I'm frightened to death of writing a standard. Do you have any idea where they might come out in this? You know, it's very hard to tell. It's always hard to tell from oral argument what the justices are going to do, because often the justices really are asking questions because they're not really sure what the answer is, or sometimes they're just floating possible theories or envisioning possible objections to the position that they that they might want to ultimately come to. Likewise, of course, there are nine of them. So some justices might go one way, some justices might go another way, some justices might go a third or a fourth way. So it's really hard to tell what the justices are going to decide. I do think there was general concern on the part of many justices about schools having undue power um, uh, to restrict student speech, especially speech that, unlike the speech in this particular case, really does deal with kind of bigger picture political, religious, social issues, including those issues as they intersect with the school, like, for example, claims of maybe misconduct or sexual misconduct by teachers or classmates or whatever else. On the other hand, I do think that you saw a lot of justices recognizing that schools need considerable authority to make sure that the schooling goes on effectively. So, again, I, I think it's very hard to, to, to figure out what they're going to do until one reads the opinion a couple of months from now. Justice Brett Kavanaugh suggested a narrow kind of ruling that might not give much guidance to lower courts. Well, that's what I started with. You know, you could imagine this opinion being written very uh, narrowly, or you could imagine this opinion being written relatively broadly. A lot depends on whether the justices want to, uh, to resolve this issue now themselves or leave it to lower courts. So, for example, you could imagine the court saying, Tinker does apply off-campus because it's important to prevent disruption on campus, and off-campus speech can cause on-campus disruption. But 
We're not resolving, for example, whether Tinker allows speech to be restricted because of a heckler's veto. We're not resolving how disruptive the speech needs to be. We're not resolving whether there would be a different standard for speech that's disruptive merely of uh, an extracurricular activity, and the only thing that's happening to the student is the student suspended from that activity. We leave that for lower courts to resolve. You can imagine the court doing that. And if it does, well, then they, things will go back to lower courts and they'd have to, to reconsider some of these questions. You could also imagine the court, for example, making this decision that is on, on its face quite narrow, but by flagging certain issues, by saying, you know, it's an interesting question whether speech can be restricted on or off campus because of the heckler's veto. Then in that case, perhaps lower courts will be emboldened to, to try to resolve that. And then maybe another such case will go back up to the, to the Supreme Court. It's possible. At the same time, I do think that Justice Alito has a good point that government officials and students deserve some guidance as to what can be said and what can be punished. And if the court just sort of just just leaves things uncertain, then there won't be much protection for speech and there won't be much protection for the legitimate interests of uh, school boards. Does it seem, though, that they're likely to reverse the Third Circuit because that decision was so broad? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Again, I think it might depend for at least some justices on how much speech restriction they see Tinker as allowing. So if, for example, Justice Alito is persuaded that on campus, Tinker does allow restriction of political speech, religious speech, speech and social matters, so long as classmates can be offended enough, I don't think he'd want to extend that off-campus. So you could imagine him saying, look, on-campus, speech has to be pretty heavily restricted, or at least schools have to have the power to, to restrict speech. But if that's so, then in that case, we need to have a more speech-protective rule off-campus. Or he could even say, I think that speech on-campus should be pretty broadly protected, but my colleagues disagree. And given that my colleagues disagree and view Tinker as giving schools a lot of power on-campus, well, then in that case, at the very least, I think they should be denied that power off campus. You can imagine some of the justices taking that view. But again, you could also imagine some of the justices saying, well, speech off campus should be treated the same way as on campus because both can have harmful effects on campus and because it's often so hard to tell what's up, what counts as on or off campus. After all, a lot of these things can be viewed on campus, even if they're sent from off campus. But given that this is so, we need to make sure that there is a pretty bright line exception for, uh, for again, political, religious, and similar kinds of speech. So it's really hard to predict, I think, what it is that the justices are going to do here. Have Supreme Court decisions in the past, let's say, uh, 10, 15, 20 years, have they weakened, generally weakened protections for student speech? Yes. After Tinker which, after all, came out in favor of the students there. The students wearing the black armbands because the court said there wasn't enough evidence of disruption. After Tinker came case uh, Bethel School District versus Fraser that said, well, vulgar speech, speech about kind of full of sexual innuendo, can be restricted on campus. And by the way, I think it's pretty clear that this Fraser doctrine does not apply off campus. You can't punish a student for off-campus vulgarity if they're not disruptive. Likewise, in, in uh, Morsi Frederick, uh, the court said, well, on campus, speech that seems to encourage illegal drug use can indeed be restricted. And again, though, the court stressed that this was limited to on campus or at least that school sponsored activities. There, the uh, speech was 
physically off campus, but it was in the context of a school, uh, a sponsored school, and school endorsed it. So yes, uh, the the court has uh, authorized more restrictions on student speech in, in some measure. Uh, this having been said, I, I don't think that the tenor of the argument in in this case was just well, the school boards need to win because schools uh, uh, schools should have broad power. I think many of the justices recognize that the power of the schools has to stop at some point, especially when we're talking about speech that's offensive for political So finally, you wrote uh, an amicus brief in this case. What was your position? So our position was, it looks like at least lower courts seem to say that Tinker does allow a lot of political speech and the like to be restricted on campus, so long as it's offensive enough to be disruptive. If that's the rule, then in that case, that has to be limited to on-campus speech. You can't authorize 24-7 control over student speech, where every time a student says something that might offend classmates, even at a political rally or online or at a church or in a letter to the editor of a newspaper, that a student would have to worry about uh, about possibly being suspended or expelled for that. So that was our position. But again, that position rested on the uh, lower courts, generally speaking, viewing Tinker as not very speech protective. And you can imagine the court saying, well, we don't care what that brief says, because we really think that Tinker is very speech protective. And if it's broadly speech protective on campus with only a few narrow restrictions allowed, then maybe it should be applied on campus. So you can imagine the court saying that. Thanks, Eugene. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. The confrontation between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men is high drama. But cross-examination just doesn't happen that way in a real courtroom. Still, every criminal defendant has the constitutional right to confront the witnesses against them. And the Supreme Court is going to consider whether defendants waive that constitutional right when they open up the door to certain evidence. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. Bob, just about everyone's heard about a defendant's right to confront witnesses, but explain the confrontation clause. The Sixth Amendment gives a defendant in a criminal prosecution the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. What that means is that at a criminal trial in which you're charged with an offense, your lawyer has the right to cross-examine any witness who testifies against you. Prosecutors are not allowed to admit statements by other witnesses to present before the jury inculpatory evidence without giving the defendant's lawyer the right to test the strength of that testimony by cross-examining them in court in front of the jury. What happened in this case? Tell us a little bit about the facts in this case. This is a case of Daryl Hemphill, who was tried for murder in New York State after another defendant was tried for the same crime. The facts are actually quite unusual because it involves another defendant who ended up pleading guilty to possession of a firearm after the murder prosecution against him had ended in a mistrial. The case was about the 2006 shooting death of a child who was a passenger in a car that drove by a fight on a street in the Bronx. The first defendant was tried, and the jury could not agree on the guilt of the defendant, and so it ended in a mistrial. Instead, what prosecutors did is they allowed this second defendant 
to plead guilty to possession of a handgun. But what was critical here is that that defendant pled guilty to possession of a 357 revolver, which was not the gun that was used in the murder. So what happened at trial to lead the judge to allow in the statement of another defendant? At the trial of Mr. Hempel, his defense lawyer advanced one of the most basic defenses that you see in criminal cases, and that is that his client did not commit the crime and some other person did. They tried to point the finger at the other defendant who had already pled guilty to possession of that different firearm. The court ruled in that case that once the defendant made that argument in front of the jury, the defense lawyer had opened the door and allowed prosecutors to use the plea allocution, which is the statement that the other defendant made when he entered his guilty plea, admitting to possession of the 357 revolver at the scene of the shooting. That was not the gun that killed the child. And so the judge said that the defense lawyer had created a misimpression in front of the jury that prosecutors were entitled to correct by admitting that statement in evidence at the trial. The problem from the defense side is that the defense lawyer never had a chance to challenge that statement. The defendant's Sixth Amendment right to cross-examine that witness, who was essentially testifying against him, was never permitted at the trial. And that's the question that's now before the Supreme Court. And in fact, that statement that the other defendant made in his plea allocution, that was never subject to cross-examination at all. No, that's exactly right. Because it was a plea allocution, it's just a statement that's made at a guilty plea where a defendant has to admit the elements of the crime in order for a judge to accept that plea. So it's not cross-examined by the prosecution or anybody else at the time. And what the defense here is arguing is that any competent defense attorney who had the ability to cross-examine this other defendant could have poked holes in that narrative by asking the other suspect whether he, for example, also possessed the murder weapon in addition to the weapon that he pled guilty to, or by exploring the motivations of that defendant to plead guilty to that weapons charge when he had originally been charged with murder. Lower courts around the country are split on this issue, one reason that the Supreme Court might have taken the case. In your opinion, as a former prosecutor, do you think the court should have allowed in that plea allocution? I think there's a good argument by the defense that that statement should not come in without the ability for the defense to cross-examine the witness for the very reason you mentioned earlier, which is when the statement was made, it was not even in the context of another trial where it was subject to cross-examination by some other lawyer. It was simply a statement that was necessary in order to allow that defendant to enter a guilty plea, and it was not in any way challenged by any other lawyer as to its veracity or its completeness. And there were other defenses available, even if the defendant in that case did possess the other handgun. There was no testimony about whether he possessed other handguns or whether he might not have been telling the truth in order to try to get a better plea from the prosecutors since he was facing a murder charge and ultimately only pled guilty to a weapons violation. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter in English. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.